Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute. And we are here to talk about free market revolution, how Ayn Rand's ideas can end big government. I probably don't have to tell anybody here that Ayn Rand continues to be America's most influential novelist of ideas. In the past 66 years, more than 25 million copies of her books have been sold. Sales surged over the past few years, partly because of the huge increase in government intrusion into the free market, people looking for answers as to why that was happening and what should be done about it. And of course, for all of us, here at Cato, we are well aware that she had a huge influence on the libertarian movement in two particular ways. First were the numbers. Has any libertarian book ever sold more copies than Atlas Shrugged? And I guess the answer might be if you count Declaration of Independence as a book, maybe so. Um, more than 50 years after it was published, still selling 200,000 or more copies a year. Ayn Rand brought more people to libertarian ideas, whether she liked it or not, than any other person in the late 20th century. And second is the passion that she brought to these ideas. The people who read Ayn Rand and got the point, and there are in fact millions of people who read her books and didn't get the point that I think they should have gotten, but there were millions also who did, didn't just become aware of costs and benefits, incentives and trade-offs. They became passionate advocates of liberty. They became believers in reason and individualism and individual rights and justice. And over the past couple of generations by now, her work has generated adulation, contempt, scholarly studies, multiple biographies, and organizations dedicated to the advancement of her ideas. And we're delighted to have two leaders of the Ayn Rand Institute with us here today to talk about the current financial crisis and how the ideas of Ayn Rand could get us out of it. Yaron Brook is executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute. He has written for the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, and you see him frequently on cable TV arguing for reason and liberty. Don Watkins is a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. He co-writes a column for Forbes with Euron. He too is a frequent commentator on television and in newspapers, and they are the authors of Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. Please welcome first Don Watkins. So, how's the sound? First, I'd like to thank everybody at Cato, especially David, for uh, hosting us. This is a real pleasure for us. And now we will see if we can get that to work. Okay. Um, it's been really interesting to watch over the past four years and really exciting to watch some of the trends that David spoke of. Ayn Rand has been more widely read each year since her death, but things really exploded around 2008. And since then, she's been a core part of the Tea Party. She's been in the headlines. She, you know, there's been this going golf phenomenon of businessmen 
saying, you know, I've had enough regulation, I've had enough taxes, I'm not going to work or I'm going to work less. And of course, whatever you think of him, she's been influential on a potential vice presidential candidate. But what's been very striking to me is that as much as her name has been part of the debate, her arguments have been almost entirely absent. And I think this is even true, even by a lot of free market supporters. They tend to view her primarily, if not solely, as a great storyteller, as a powerful teller of stories, but really just taking ideas that were already out there. And I want to look a little bit at what I think is uniquely powerful about Ayn Rand, because certainly she's a powerful storyteller, but also she has uniquely powerful ideas. And in particular, what our book focuses on is the power of her moral defense of capitalism. Now, to understand kind of what's uniquely powerful about her, you have to understand her view of the role morality plays in bringing us to where we are today, with the government dominating our lives and dominating the economy. And in the book, we talk about two moral arguments that we think drive the growth of government. Now, the first we call the morality of, or I'm sorry, the argument from greed. And this is simply the argument that looks at profit seekers and says, well, these guys certainly out, aren't out for the public interest. They're motivated by profit. They're motivated by dangerous and evil greed. And therefore, if something goes wrong, they're the guys we're going to blame, and the solution is going to be what? It's going to be more government controls. Maybe you remember there was an old SNL skit with Dan Aykroyd, and he was a ruthless profiteer who sold toys to children that were incredibly dangerous, like bag of glass, <laughs> which happened to be a bag of jagged bits of glass. I mean, that's the view of businessmen in our culture, right? And so when something goes wrong, whether it's the financial crisis, whether it's the Great Depression, whether it's tainted lettuce, it's always greedy businessmen, and so what do we get? Well, we get more and more regulation to tamp down on the greed. The next argument that we talk about is what we call the argument for need. And this is more or less what it sounds like. It says if somebody has a need, morally we consider them to have it fulfilled at other people's expense. Whatever you require, if you cannot fulfill it yourself, well, the government is the proxy as our moral agent it's going to guarantee it for you. It's going to take from those who have earned something and give it to those who didn't because morally they are entitled to it. What's the result? Social Security, Medicare, that was supposed to be a slide change, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, public housing, whatever it is, if you need it, the government's going to guarantee it. We've seen this growth of the entitlement state. And as a result, because this is a moral process, because morality is the, not the only thing, but a primary thing, a fundamental thing driving it, the result is that this becomes untouchable, becomes a third rail. Because to challenge entitlements, you're challenging morality. Now, underlying these, underlying these arguments is a single basic view that you can put as anti-selfishness. It's the idea that selfishness is immoral and dangerous, and therefore we need to restrict it. Where does this view come from? It comes from the conventional pictures that to be selfish is basically to just let out your, in, your, in, uh, your urges, right? You just follow whatever uh, flight of fancy you have, do whatever you feel like in the moment. 
That's the kind of selfish person that we think of. And if that conflicts with others, if it involves picking their pockets or exploiting them or defrauding them, so be it. That's what it means to be selfish. To be selfless, on the other hand, is to, it's to restrain yourself. It's to be concerned with the higher things in life than satisfying your urges. It's to be friendly. It's to be altruistic. It's to be giving. It's to put others in one way or another above the self. So if that's your view of self-interest, if that's what you think it means to be a selfish person, then what are you going to think of a political economic system that leaves you free to be self-interested, that unleashes selfishness? It's pretty clear, right? You're going to try to limit that selfishness and limit capitalism as much as possible, and even, indeed, eliminate it. What's been the right's response to these factors? What have they done in the face of this sense of being a, capitalism and economic freedom being attacked as greedy, selfish? Well, I think there's been two basic kinds of responses. One of them is simply to try to ignore moral issues and deal only with consequences. And I think this is problematic for a number of reasons, but two basic ones is it, um, it doesn't address the two basic arguments that are driving the growth of government in the first place. It leaves them unanswered. And second of all, what you see is that it actually, they can't escape morality. So uh, for instance, Thomas Sowell, whom I'm a big fan of, but if you look at his uh, book, Basic Economics, which is presenting a, a, an economic defense of the power of markets, and in many ways an excellent book, but a collectivist mindset, morality slips in all over the place. The whole framework of the book is, how do we allocate society's resources? Now, if your view is, how do we allocate society's resources, are you going to end up saying the individual has an inalienable right to that which he creates? Or are you much more likely to slide into a view that says, you didn't build that? The second aspect is that some people say, well, look, the issue is just not going to extremes. Of course, we need some selflessness, but of course, we need some selfishness. And so let's just have a nice mixture. But the problem is that a mixed morality leads to a mixed economy. It leads us exactly to where we are today. And because the self-interested part is viewed as immoral, that's the part that tends to get diluted. When you have to change the mixture, you say, well, let's get rid of more of that immorality. And you get more and more of this process of the growth of government. Ayn Rand's argument is that we've been offered a false bill of goods, a false alternative between Madoff and Mother Teresa. Now, it's not simply that she, when she defends self-interest, it's not simply that she points to something everybody says is bad and says, oh, it's good. I mean, if you point to somebody who punches his mother in the teeth and say, you think that's bad, but I think it's good, you're not going to get too far. Nor is she just arbitrarily redefining selfishness for her own purposes. Rather, there's a philosophic reason why she thinks it has to be redefined. The conventional definition of selfishness, she says, it leaves out a possibility and a crucial possibility. It leaves no room for, to take an example from her novels, Howard Rourke, or to take an example from real life, at least in his business career, Steve Jobs. It leaves out the person who pursues his own well-being but does so without harming others, does so by creating value rather than pilfering it. Um, Ayn Rand says that 
the conventional understanding we have of selfishness packages together a Madoff and a Jobs. It treats them as the same. Um, there's an old line from Bill Buckley, of all people, who said, you know, you can't look at a person who shoves an old lady out of the path of a speeding bus and one who shoves them in the path of a speeding bus and say, hey, both those guys are the same because they like to push old ladies around. That's what Ayn Rand calls a package deal. It says you're, she says you're treating things that are superficially similar but essentially different as the same. And she says that's what our conventional view of selfishness does. It leaves out real selfishness. Howard Rourke. So what's Ayn Rand's real alternative? Well, she says you have to think of selfishness not as doing whatever you feel like, following some innate urge. It is rather a conceptual choice an individual makes that I value my life and I want to make the best of that life. And so I'm going to scientifically investigate what's good for it and adhere to the principles that will enable me to achieve my actual objective, long-term self-interest. Just as you can't achieve a, a, a proper diet by eating whatever you feel like, so you can achieve a proper successful life by doing whatever you feel like. So, Ayn Rand lays out in a lot of detail what she regards as an actually genuinely selfish life, but I, I want to talk about three elements that we stress in the book because they're most relevant to economics. First is that the essence of a moral selfish life is thinking. It's going by facts rather than feelings. It means, in effect, opening your eyes so that you can govern your way through life more effectively. Second, it means productiveness. It means centering your life around a productive purpose. It's what's going to give you the wealth you need to prosper, and it's what's going to give you the self-esteem and sense of purpose that you need to really be happy. And third, when it comes to dealing with other people, the core of what is going to be good for you is to engage in win-win relationships, which she calls the traitor principle. Not trying to get whatever you can out of them, but looking for ways that you both can benefit. Now, if that's your view of self-interest, and if that's your view of what capitalism is all about, what are you going to think of capitalism? So capitalism, in Ayn Rand's view, is the system based on individual rights, including private property rights. It's a system where the government's only job is to protect rights, including property rights. It doesn't enforce morality. It can't make you be moral. Indeed, there's no such thing in her view as it being possible to make somebody moral. To be moral is to choose to be rational. You, it's not that you shouldn't do that to people, it's that you can't. So that, that's not what a moral government does. What a moral government does is it makes it possible for you to be moral in a social context by protecting your rights. And so what does that mean? Well, it means, for instance, if morally you should be rational, well, then capitalism protects your right to individual liberty i.e. to reach your own conclusions and act on them. It says nobody and no group can come along and enforce its view of what you should be doing on you. If you want to write a book that says something, nobody can interfere with that. If you want to start a business that sells a product that people think is a dumb idea, that's your freedom. It's your judgment of the mind that's protected. If productiveness is the essence of what you should be doing, if that's what's right, well, then you have a right to the product of your productiveness. You have a right to property. If what's right is engaging with people through win-win trade, well, then you have a right to voluntary cooperation. That is, 
You come together when you both can agree, when all parties can agree that they'll benefit, or else they're free to go their separate ways. But nobody can stop you uh, in the name of what they think is good for you. And if they think that they have something good that they want to impose upon you, too bad. Each person's voluntary consent is necessary. And if morality is about self-interest, if it's about making the most of your own life, well, then you have a right to life and to the pursuit of happiness. That's then the connection, a proper understanding of selfishness and the right to engage in it that makes capitalism a moral system. So with that, I'm going to let Iran uh, elaborate. Thank you. I have no cool slides. Sorry. Um, so I do a lot of uh, I do a lot of debates, and um, one of the topics that I debate recently, you know, in the last few years, has obviously been the financial crisis. And when you do a debate, John, I'm sure John is familiar with this. You do a debate with somebody who believes that the financial crisis was all caused by capitalism and too much freedom and banks and greedy businessmen. Within, within 15, 20 minutes, you discover that they have nothing to say. They know, have no facts that they can point to to show that their explanation of the financial crisis is true. We have all the facts. Our case is simple. It's clear. It's unequivocal. Um, a debate like that, you know, we should win it every single time, overwhelmingly. Everybody in the audience should afterwards sign up, right, to, uh, to our ideology because the facts are so clearly, obviously, on our side that it is stunning that anybody else can believe anything else. And if you don't believe me, read John's book about the financial crisis. But, or our chapter, which we have a chapter in the book, because even in a short chapter, you can kind of summarize what was wrong, and then there's a lot of detail, but it's kind of obvious. It's not that hard. Indeed, I would argue that from a political economic perspective, the case for capitalism, we won it a long time ago. It's easy. Right? We've been doing this experiment for the last 250 years. In all these countries all over the world, across time, across geographies, and the experiment, the results of the experiment have been clear for quite a long time, but the results of the experiment are quite clear. If what you care about is material wealth, if what you care about is economic progress, freedom works, statism doesn't. That's it. Time and time and time again, everywhere in the world, this is the result. And we can't convince anybody. Because let's be clear, we're losing, right? I mean, let's not, no illusions. I don't care if Romney wins, we still lose, right? Because he's Romney. I mean, I'm all for winning, but right, we're not, we're not winning. And, and yet the stunning thing is, I mean, it's, it's overwhelmingly stunning, is the amount of facts, the amount of evidence, and the amount of theory. It's not just that we have facts and we have theory. We have, you know, we understand why freedom works. It's not a mystery. The amount of facts, the amount of evidence, the amount of economic, political theory we have on our side is overwhelming. We're right. Yet, why do we lose? Why don't the people in the audience, when you do a debate like that, just get it? I mean, they should. Why don't people learn from experience? Because I'm here to tell you, people don't learn from experience. 
people don't learn from history, even when they're taught it, which they're not anymore, certainly not true history, they don't learn. And, you know, we kind of start the book off with this question, you know, capitalism, freedom, work, yet we don't seem to be getting very far making that argument. And work, I mean, in terms of what people claim they care about, standard of living, material wealth, they work. So the question is why? And, and you know, you watch these, you watch these Keynesians, um, socialists, whatever, uh, leftists on television explain what they want to do. And it's garbage, right? I mean, you should be able to poke tons of holes in it. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, we're, we'll stimulate the economy. We'll take money from one pocket and put it into another pocket. And that has a multiplier effect of two, right? The dollars here didn't do anything, but the dollars here will do something. I mean, it's complete and utter nonsense. Uh, even it, it, in plain economics, it's nonsense. And yet they get away with it. And it doesn't work, right? Didn't work during the Great Depression, didn't work in Japan, didn't work anytime. It's never worked, ever, 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 right? But we'll try it one more time. <laughs> so how do they get away with that? Because I wish, you know, if we had that secret, right, we could, we could tell stories and get away with them. Because they tell stories, and they get away with it. And people buy it, and people, people endorse it, and people vote for it, and people get behind it. And they get, they get passionate about it, right? They get passionate. So what's going on here? And what I'd argue, and what Don has argued here before me, is that what is getting all these economic stories that people are told, that is just a facade. They are just reinforcing a much more fundamental message. You know, people say, you know, why do politicians adopt Keynesian economics um, when it's so blatantly false? Because they don't care because it serves their purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is government is the solution. This is the only economic theory that says that more government will solve whatever problem you have. So we're going to adopt Keynesianism, not because anybody believes in it, but because they believe in government. So you have to ask the question, why do they believe in government? It's not because of economic theory they believe in government. It has to be something else. What the economists and what the politicians are doing is they are playing into much deeper held beliefs that people have. They're playing into the philosophy and the moral code that people hold. And they're telling them, you know, we share this moral code. We share this, this, these philosophical beliefs. So trust us, the rest is just details. So what are some of these? And, and again, Don alluded to them already. Well, things like, you know, you are your brother's keeper. And by the way, you are your brother's keeper. And if we left you free, we know you wouldn't quite do enough for your brother. You just wouldn't. Because we know you're selfish. And what do we know about selfishness? Don just told us. Selfishness is bad, and selfishness leads to being Bernie Madoff. So we know you're all selfish. We can see it, like in how you behave day to day. On the other hand, morally, you know you're your brother's keeper. And if we left you free to be your brother's keeper, you wouldn't take care of him because you're selfish. So we've got a scheme. You know, we're going to force you to be your brother's keeper. And it'll help you feel better about yourself, right? Because your brother will be kept. And you know, it'll all work out. And we'll do a little bit of force. You know, Remember when they first passed the income tax? It was just going to be 7% on a small portion of the American population. No big deal. And it's all done incrementally like this, right? Little steps. But it's all meant to appease 
some morality, some deep-held belief that you have about, about this keep and selfishness. I mean, people talk, uh, this 47% comment that Romney made, which is really stupid. I mean, it's stupid because it's wrong and because it's stupid politically. You just don't say stuff like that, even if it was right. But it's wrong because this is not about class warfare. This is not about classes voting what they believe. That's a Marxist belief. People don't vote their class. People vote their ideas. I mean, I come from California, where people are pretty well off, and they all vote Democratic. In the richest communities in, in, um, in California, right, Marin County, north of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Beverly Hills is overwhelmingly Democratic. Rich people vote Republicans, right? That's a class story, but it's not true. People vote their ideas. And these rich people are voting to appease their guilt. They're voting to raise their taxes. And we're going to have a ballot initiative in November to raise our taxes in California. All these rich people are going to vote for raising their own taxes. They are. Why? Because they are their brother's keeper. And they, don't, they know they don't give enough to charity, so they need to be forced to give more. It's part of the story. It's part of how they scam you into it. But this is ideas. But it's more deeper than that, even. One of the deeply held beliefs in this country, to a large extent because we are a Christian country, is that we all are born of original sin. So we're all flawed. Many of us you know, are just so flawed that we can't control our emotions. We're generally irrational. Just read Nudge or any of these books right, on how irrational we all are. We're all too stupid to take care of ourselves. I mean, that's just a fact, right? That's what we're told. That's what so many people believe. But particularly successful people believe that other people who are not as successful as they are are just too dumb to take care of themselves. So we successful people need to take care of those other people because we're our brother's keeper, after all. So you've got original sin, which is this notion that we're flawed and we're not able to be rational, not able to take care of ourselves. You've got your brother's keeper, and you've got these mixtures of ideas that lead us towards... Statism towards some solution from the top. Well, if people really can't take care of themselves, then we can't let them die. Government has to step in and take care of them. And we need really, really smart people in government so they can take care of them. And you know, when we, we, read, we read Hayek, but you know, what do you do? So yes, we know central planning doesn't work, but you know, you make it work as much as you can. Because the alternative is worse than central planning gone bad, because free markets gone bad, people would can't take care of themselves. They die in the streets. And again, tell with history, tell that the fact that in the 19th century, nobody actually died in the street. That doesn't, fill the story, doesn't fit the story. So we won't talk about history. We will ignore the facts. You know, and, and the attack on businessmen is, is perfect here. Because they're the, exam, the, 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 the prime example of this. Yes, they can cope. Those businessmen can cope. They are capable of being rational. And as a consequence, remember, they're also selfish and therefore they're bad. As a consequence, they're going to use their rationality and they're going to use the fact that they can cope to exploit all of us and take all of our stuff away from us and treat us really, really badly. So, and this is just a, a, a small example of, of deeply held ideas that people have out there in the culture that lead them towards statism that nobody, 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 nobody except Ayn Rand really challenges. And people, you know, I hear people who are pro-free markets always say, well, but coercion, coercion's bad. How do you know coercion's bad? By what standard is coercion bad? 
Not by the standard of most philosophers. Not by the standard of most people in the world. If you can coerce somebody to a good cause, then it's good. Is the common belief out there. Nobody's against coercion except people in this room, maybe. Nobody is. You can't start with coercion. Coercion doesn't solve anything. You have to tell people why coercion is bad. And you have to convince them of that. You have to argue against it. And that's a pretty deeply philosophical issue of why coercion is bad. It's not self-evident. It's not obvious. So, I mean, from my perspective, I think we can challenge efficiency of government programs, and we should, and we need to. But it ultimately makes no difference. All they'll say is we'll make government more efficient. Isn't that the calling cry of conservatives, right? We'll do a better job. We won't cut any programs. We won't eliminate anything. We'll just run them better. And maybe we'll eliminate some, but we'll start others that do the job instead. But they're not truly about shrinking government. They're not truly about eliminating. They're not truly about limiting government to, its, to, to protecting individual rights. So, you know, and I, you know, even in the language we use, unfortunately, so many of our economists use. For example, when we attribute uh, self-interest to politicians, when we say, yeah, politicians, it's just a self-interested, just like businessmen. No difference, right? This is, uh, um, there's no difference between the self-interest that involves coercing other people and the self-interest that involves in trade in win-win situations. It's all self-interest. Then how am I going to trust businessmen? Okay. So the language we use. The concepts we use, the ideas we use, the philosophical terms we use are crucial. And the right generally has basically ceded the concepts of morality, the concepts of philosophy to the left. They've given it to them. They've allowed the left to dominate them all high ground. They've allowed the deaf to define all our terms. I even get pushback. Oh, don't talk about self-interest. Self-interest means to people all this horrible behavior. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's not good. So we need to take it back. We need to redefine it. We can't just give them these concepts and give them these terms and give them the philosophical high ground and walk away because we will lose. Because they have enormous influence on the lives of people out there. So what Rand does is she challenges us all these assumptions. And what we try to do in the book is challenge all these assumptions. You have to question, why are you your brother's keeper? Is that really morality? Rand's answer is no, it's not. Morality is about you are your own keeper. Your life is yours to be lived, to flourish. That's what self-interest means. You have to define it. We have to capture that term. We can't give them your brother's keeper. They'll abuse it. And you're not. None of you are your brother's keeper. Everybody has the capacity to be rational. They can use it or not use it. That's an issue of choice. And they should suffer the consequences when they don't. That's an issue of justice. And the only way to incentivize people to be rational is to allow them to be irrational and let them suffer the consequences, not to shield them from the bad choices that they make. Human beings are the rational animal. If you give that up, you give up capitalism. You give up freedom. There is no freedom if we're all irrational, whim-worshipping animals. There isn't. We are not born in original sin. Our selfishness does not drive us to all the horrible acts that they claim it does. Selfishness means taking care of self. 
How do you do that? That's a good question. That's, Ayn Rand spends a lot of her writing defining that. But that's something that needs to be talked about, needs to be elaborated, needs to be studied. That's a science. But don't let's just give away taking care of self as raping and pillaging, and that's it. Again, if you give up the term, if you give up the concept, if you give up the ideas, you lose. We need a heroic view of man. We need to be able to project man as heroic, as able, as rational, as competent, as worthy. That's what makes Atlas Shrugged the bestseller. It's nothing else. It's a vision of man. It's the hero worship that's in that book. It's the vision of what human beings can and should be. That's what sells it, and that's what we need to capitalize on. And that's true in Atlas Shrugged and in life in our portrayal of business. Business and businessmen are noble activity. Not to say every businessman is noble. We know a lot of them who are not. But let's not focus on them. Everybody focuses on them. Let's focus on the noble, on the good, on the productive, on the justice that's involved in recognizing their achievements. Let's give, I mean, again, the left is very good at this. They have multiple novelists, and they have movies, and they have Hollywood, and they have television series. They produce all this art to project their type of world, and they do a great job at it, and they've got everybody convinced of it. We need to do the same thing. We need to view our system as noble, as good, as heroic, and the people in it as heroic. And who more heroic, as Atlas Shrugged shows, than the businessmen who make everything that we have around us, all the, all the wealth that we have possible. So we need to find business heroes. We need to define business heroes, and we need to celebrate them. Why is coercion bad? We can't just start with coercion is bad. Why? If, if you go to heaven because I coerced you, then maybe it's good. You get to go to heaven. I get to go to heaven because I coerced you to go to heaven. I mean, it's all good stuff. <laughs> it's not obvious, guys. <laughs> It's because it destroys the means of survival that human beings have. Our means of survival is our reason, is our rational faculty. That's how we survive. That's how we thrive. That's how we grow. That's how we live. Coercion is the opposite of thinking. The gun is the opposite of reason. With a gun to your back, you cannot think, and therefore you cannot pursue your survival. That's why coercion is bad. It's because reason is good. It's because reason is how we survive. I mean, this is just all outline, right? Because you're all going to read our book, and you're all going to read Ayn, go back and read your Ayn Rand. We have to recapture our moral high ground. We have to recapture the philosophical high ground. It's not just about morality. It's about epistemology. It's about how we think about concepts, about an advocacy of reason and rationality. We have to capture that. We've Given in, you know, the universities are dominated, the philosophy departments are dominated by the left. They've taken it over. And the people who oppose them, even on campuses, don't really oppose them, not on the fundamentals. Nobody opposes them on the fundamentals, except Ayn Rand. So if we don't gain them all high ground, we basically lose. Like we're losing right now, like we continue to lose. So the book is really a call, a call to action. The book's a call to take morality and philosophy in the realm of economic freedom seriously. 
to make that our banner, to make, make that a call, not just that we want economic freedom, but that we want to own our own lives, that our lives are ours, that we are capable of being rational, that we are moral and the business is heroic, that profits are noble, making money is good, not just because it creates wealth for other people, but because it's a sign that we're creating wealth for ourselves. We're taking care of ourselves and we are flourishing. So the book, as I said, is a call to action to take morality and philosophy and Ayn Rand seriously. Thank you all. Thank you, Yaron. Thank you, Don. Uh, we're going to open this up for questions now. We will bring microphones around, so wait to be called on. I noticed that up here, for no obvious reason, it says on this screen, hashtag Cato events. I don't really do Twitter culture, but I take it that means if, if you want to tweet about this, you're supposed to tweet hashtag Cato events. Um, questions? Right there. Announce your name and affiliation. And Stephen Shore, PBGC. Do you see Ayn Rand as divinely inspired? <laughs> no. <laughs> Ayn Rand was a really, really, really smart lady. Um, I think geniuses like that come around once a millennium. I really think she's that kind of genius. And she thought things that other people didn't see. Uh, we have geniuses in other fields uh, that see things that others don't see. But she came up with a philosophy that I think is true. Uh, and I think because of that, because of her philosophical insight, she could predict, in quotes, the future. She could see where philo particular philosophy would take a culture. And I think if you read Atlas Shrugged today, it's incredibly prophetic. Not because she had a crystal ball, but she, could, she understood the role of ideas in history. She understood what ideas lead to. But no, God had nothing to do with this one. And just to add to that, you know, if somebody had said, I agree with all of Einstein's physics, people would say, well, you're, aren't you a dogmatist or something? They'd say, no, this is a science, and if somebody discovered truth on a significant scale, it's possible to recognize that truth. But the reason it's different in philosophy and that you get a different kind of attitude towards it is people don't view philosophy as a science. Now, in part, that's understandable. As most philosophers are complete opposite of scientists. They're hacks. But philosophy prop practice properly is a science. And so it's something that a person can reach objective truth on and then other, people's can, other people can come to agree. And so I, I don't think it's mysterious um, or inherently suspicious that you have a philosopher and that there's some people who think, on all the uh, philosophic fundamentals, she's correct. Another question. Yes, in the back. Wait for the microphone. And I was pointing to the gentleman behind you, but just let them both ask a question. <laughs> yes, uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is that, was she ever on welfare, like some critic of her like to mention about this? And secondly, those same critics say that she mentioned something about in her, in her writing about sexual violence. Uh, was she kind of devious or these people just like to criticize her? Thanks. So uh, she was never on welfare. 
The claims that are being made is that late in her life, she was on Social Security and, Medi and Medicare. Um, we have no evidence one way or the other, so factually, I can't confirm or deny that. Not that I think it should matter one iota, right? How do you not go on Medicare after you're 65, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> you're legally required to. Uh, there's a whole system to make sure that you do. And why wouldn't you take back some of the money you, you paid into the Social Security system? Of course you're going to take it. I'm going to take it. You can now start denouncing me now. <laughs> I am going to take Social Security. If I can get some of my stolen money back, I view that as a virtue, not a vice. Um, But, but it's deeper than that, because she actually has a whole essay talking about this question, which would be great if the critics actually read, because she has a, a, an essay that deals with a similar question, and that is for a student asked her question, should he accept a government scholarship, right, a scholarship from the government to attend school? And she says that as long as he is an, an, uh, an advocate against government scholarships, against government involvement in the economy at all, then yes, he should, as long as he advocates against it at the same time, that he's the only one worthy of getting it. Again, it's, he's going to pay that money, right? and he's fighting against the system. The real problem is the people who support this system and who take the money, not the other way around. So it would be good, and, and there's a whole essay on this. I think it's in Capitalism, Not Known Ideal. So I encourage uh, who is ever interested. Uh, Voices for Reason, sorry. Uh, Voices for Reason. So I encourage anybody who's really interested in an in-depth discussion of that issue to go read it. Um, what was the other one about sex? Um, you know, I have no idea what a sex life was in person, so, uh, but there's absolutely no evidence against to suggest, uh, I, I don't know what you described, the deviancy or whatever. Um, I mean, that's just absurd, and... and uh, I think it was the novels. Yeah, I mean, in the novels, the sex is extremely passionate. Um, you might like the sex scenes in the novels, you might not like the sex scenes in the novels, uh, but I, there's nothing deviant about the sex scenes in the novels. There's a general... So these kinds of issues are raised all the time, and it's part of the... And I'm not saying this was your purpose, but uh, there... It's part of what I talked about in my talk, which is the fact of her actual arguments have been absent from the debate. And so it's amazing the lengths that people will go to avoid talking about the fact that Ayn Rand said you should be happy and you should be free to be happy. They don't want that as part of the debate. It puts the left in a very uncomfortable position. If somebody's saying you have a right to exist for your own sake, you don't want to be the guy on the other side of that going, no, you don't. And so they, since, she's, since she was around, and particularly if you read the reviews of Atlas Shrugged, if you read what was written in her lifetime, they've always tried to look for ways that they can say, let's not talk about the issues, let's put Ayn Rand off the table. I mean, to take something like the romance scenes in her books, this is a culture in which Fifty Shades of Grey is a bestseller. Yeah. If, if you make the point that you have a right to be happy in your life on this earth, doesn't that also put the right in a difficult position? Yes, it does. That's, and that's why it's so challenging for them. Okay, back to the young woman there. 
Sorry about that. Uh, Dana Berliner from the Institute for Justice. Um, we do a lot of work on behalf of entrepreneurs and small businesses. And one of the things we find is that the media, even the left media, is relatively receptive. To Put the, the mic right up to your mouth. Relatively please. receptive to the idea that small businesses are good things and that entrepreneurship of those kinds of businesses is a good thing. And I'm wondering how, I guess, how it's possible to both like small businesses and hate large businesses at the same time, how you would explain that philosophically. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said. And by the way, that's not unique to the left. That's absolutely true of the right. You hear the right always say whenever a Republican talks, so, we want to spur small business. Uh, you know, God forbid they say anything positive about bigger businesses. Uh, they, they never do. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that they conflate economic power with political power. And, uh, of course, small businesses don't have a lot of economic power because they're small and there's competition in the area. And uh, large businesses have economic power over, over many people's lives and over uh, both their customers, their employees, their suppliers, and so on. And they view economic power as the same as political power. Now, political power is what? Political power is coercion. Political power is the gun. That's what defines government. What defines government is coercion. What defines government is a gun. You, you don't pay your taxes. You don't follow the rules. Somebody comes and forcibly removes you, puts you in jail, forces you to pay a fine, whatever. Force is used. Um, a company sells its product at a price you don't want. That's economic power. You, you want to buy an iPhone for 50 bucks and the iPhone costs 100 bucks. That's their, they have economic power to sell it for 100. But they don't have economic power to pull a gun out and force that 100 out of your pocket. And that's a fundamental difference, which everybody conflates, both the right and the left. And as a consequence, you find suspicion of any business that achieves any kind of stature uh, across the political spectrum. Nobody defends. I mean, granted, a lot of big business is corrupt, but put aside, put aside that issue, which I don't think is what the problem is with the left or the right for that matter. That's not the issue. They, they hate big business because they view it as coercive in some sense. They don't, they don't understand what force really is. Right here. Uh, you mentioned Einstein's laws of physics in a kind of a, an obtuse example. Um, we tend to think of uh, things in two dimensions, uh, and in flatland, uh, physics works real well. Uh, and even if you extend to a spherical cow, you can solve your agricultural problems. I wonder to what extent uh, Ayn Rand is talking right versus left, uh, uh, Dagny Taggart versus Wesley Mooch. Uh, uh, or uh, Keynes, uh, Keynes versus Hayek, and that you can't, uh, do you uh, think that uh, what we're doing, and, and I scanned your book, are we, uh, is there some two-dimensional thinking that, need, that ignores the multi-dimensional combinatorics of our uh, current economy and our current uh, world? So there's a general suspicion in our culture about consistency and about any sort of principle. And it says, 
you're simplifying, things are much more messy. And there, I mean, this is actually a product of philosophy. People used to think in principle. James Madison made the point of once you give up the principle of freedom, even a little bit, you're setting on a course to the destruction of freedom. But philosophy threw that out. Pragmatists like John Dewey threw that out. And so we're suspicious of any sort of principle. The reason, and I tried to indicate this in my talk a little bit, the reason that, for instance, people think, well, of course you couldn't be consistently selfish or consistently selfless, that's too simplistic. Or you can't be consistently capitalist or consistently socialist, that's too simplistic. Is because they don't actually know what the principle is. They don't actually know what it would really look like to be selfish and what it would really look like to have capitalism. Our view, and this is what we argue in the book, is that if you really understood what that principle means in reality, you'd see, only good comes from selfishness, only good comes from capitalism, and only bad comes from the opposite. So, yes, we are against any sort of idea that, well, it's very complex, so maybe you don't really own your life all the time. We think if you understand what that principle means, then there's no problem embracing it consistently. No, no, there are 200 principles, and you know we've just focused here on, on a couple of principles, but there are many principles. Ayn Rand's ethics breaks down to a lot of different principles. Uh, and there are many views out there in the world. Um, you know, they're wrong. Just because there are many of them doesn't make them right. Uh, there are many, many paths to falsehood. There tends to be just one to the truth. And that's, that's true in mathematics, and that's true in, uh, in life. Uh, you can go wrong lots of different ways. It's hard. There are not a lot of ways to go right. Right, I mean by correct. Bill <laughs> Harvey. Hi, <clears throat> my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm wondering, in your book, uh, do you address the question of why so many people, of maybe even a majority of people, reject the uh, universality of economic laws so that the prevalent view in society is that free market capitalism is just fine for allocating resources to shoe production, but God forbid the free, that we should rely on free market capitalism to allocate resources to health care. Well, I think, the, I think yes. I mean, that's a big part of the book and a bigger part of what we try to say. It's because they are not thinking economically. They're thinking morally. So shoes, so let's put it this way. If, um, if poor people really, really needed shoes and there was a huge shoe crisis for some reason, then those same people would say, ah, oh, the markets failed to provide shoes and therefore we need government intervention to provide shoes. Healthcare is a much more... You know, if you think about you are your brother's keeper, well, healthcare is an obvious one. We have to, you know, healthcare, and it's also complicated and it's complex. Shoes are simpler. They are driven by emotion and they're driven by their morality, not by the, 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 the science of economics. We know that the science of economics works the same on shoes as it does on healthcare. And if it allocates shoes well, they'll certainly allocate healthcare well. They don't want healthcare allocated well. Their definition of well is different. Their definition of well is whatever they feel like it. And economics doesn't work on feelings. So we know, for example, that, I, I give you we know, for example, that in a free market in healthcare, healthcare will not be the same for everybody. Rich people will get better healthcare than poor people. Just like rich people drive nicer cars than poor people. That's just, an, just a reality. 
Now, we also know that poor people will probably get better health care than they do in any other system, right? But they'll get worse health care than rich people. Obama and, and many on the left don't care about how good the health care the poor get is. What they care is that they get the same health care as other people. So they're willing to twist the economics and, and deny economic univers the universality of economic principles in order to get their egalitarian principle, because egalitarianism, the moral philosophical point, is more important to them than anything in economics. So they really just don't care about economic uni universal principles. What they care is equality. But it's actually worse than that, I think. Yes. And this is my plug for e the importance of economic knowledge. It's, it, so I don't think they, so they might say, yeah, you can leave the market, shoes to the market. But they have no clue why shoes work in a market. They don't understand the principles even in that realm. They, it, they don't understand supply and demand and the way that prices are working, and then they just fail to put it all together when it comes to health care. Part of Ayn Rand's point is that because of the moral issue, intellectuals stopped educating people about the market. And so a whole lot of knowledge about capitalism was lost or never gained. Knowledge about economics, knowledge about capitalism's actual history. And so it's not like if you learn the moral argument, now you know everything you know about, need to know about capitalism. But it means that that is a crucial step and a high leverage step that needs to take place for people to be able to see, yes, capitalism leaves the individual to pursue his own affairs through win-win relationships and what that means economically is such and such and what that, the way that worked out historically is such and such. So the, the problem is they don't get economics, but the reason they don't get economics, and this is, I think, the crucial point that Iran made and that we try to make in the book, they don't get the economics because they can't get the economics because the economics clashes with their whole philosophic view of the world. And this is true of the intellectuals as well. This is true of the people who should and do have the capacity to know it. They have the knowledge to know it, but they evade it because it's uncomfortable. So Paul Krugman gets economics. He just doesn't want to get it, so he evades it. So he's ruled by much more base ideas, much more base principles, and he ignores economics and he lies. He just plain lies about economics and it doesn't bother him because it fits into this philosophical framework that he's built for himself. Yes, over there. Uh, Pat Spann representing myself. You touched on something I asked at a. Can you make it close? Like we okay, can. I. Uh, you touched on something uh, that I'd asked at a previous conference on um, on um, health care. Um, do you have a sense of why and when health care uh, stopped being treated like a normal commodity? Because I, I'm old enough to remember when I got sick in the 50s and the doctor came and my parents paid him some money, and no one had any health care. So when, I guess my, the basic thing is how and when did the, the vast majority of Americans stop viewing health care like it does, like you said, the type of car you have or the quality of the uh, Italian suit you have, that type of thing? Well, I mean, you can speak more on this, Yaron. Um, <laughs> I, always, I always do. <laughs> One element is I don't think it was ever viewed fully as a good. It, there was, it was always intertwined with an idea of caretaking, which was always intertwined with an idea of altruism.
because people didn't see self-interest and caring for others as the same, they always united this idea of, well, medical, uh, the medical realm is a realm in which there's a special kind of what we would call altruistic relationship. Um, I also think one of the reasons why things went askew is precisely that they're, unlike some industries which started as basically a free market in this country and then got taken over by government, healthcare was at such a primitive level still by the time government started taking over that I don't think we ever saw anything resembling a free market, which re really distorted people's understanding of the field. But it's, there's a lot to that, that issue. Well, so... I don't think there was a point in time where uh, politicians or intellectuals would ever said, you know what, up until now we've been treating healthcare as a marketplace. From now on, we're going to treat it as a right, right? As a, as... But that's not how they do it. They ever do it, right? What do they do? They sneak it in slowly until you get to the point where, well, of course that's a right. How could it have been anything other? And how do they sneak it in? They sneak it in exactly through these little altruistic steps. We don't want to take over healthcare, but look, there's this little group over here. It's not a lot of people, and they're really struggling, and they don't have any healthcare, and they're dying because of it, or their lives are shorter because of it. Can't we just help them? It won't cost a lot of money. Okay, I can't argue against that, right? It makes me feel good if I'm helping the really, really, really poor, the really, really, really old. Okay, so we covered them. Now, there's a new group, of course, right? So now, yeah, we covered them, but there's this other group that kind of falls into the cracks. It doesn't quite, can't take care of itself, but they're not quite as poor, so they don't get the benefits. Can we cover them, please? Just this once, right? Just at a low level. And that's how it happens. I mean, you know, the best example, and the Republicans always vote for it, right? Or they vote against it for a while, and then they vote for it later because... The moral high ground, it's all about take your brother's keeper, right? So the best example of this is CHIP, you know, this, this children, this thing that covers children, right? And Republicans are huge on this. They, they voted for it. They, they, you know, I think the, the, this was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. This is under Reagan. It was passed. And what did the Democrats say? They said, look, there's this little group of, of children, right? They, they, they're not quite poor enough to get Medicare, but they're not wealth from wealthy enough families so the family can afford good health care. And children? You want children not to get health care? I mean, you guys don't have a heart. But that's, and then slowly, you've got 30%, you know, today, out of every dollar spent in health care, 51 cents is spent by the government. We don't have private health care in this country. We have 51% is socialized. We have socialized medicine in America already. We have a two-tier system. So now... It seems like, well, of course the government should take care of them. I mean, who else would take care of them? It's unthinkable. Nobody can remember. Nobody knows the facts about a system before they were taken care of. Nobody wants to challenge the idea that they weren't dying, that it wasn't horrible, because it's just obvious that if you don't take care of the children, they'll all die. But they always sneak it in. They always do it slowly because the American people are not. This is, makes it unique because in Europe, it's not a problem. In Europe, you want to take over a bunch of people's lives, you just say, you know, do it for the state or do it for whatever. You can't do that in America. America, Americans still have a certain rebellion, sense of individualism, a certain sense of life, Ayn Rand called it, that rebels against people trying to take over their lives. So the only way you can do it is slowly and by sneaking it in on them. And, and, and you can see this with Obamacare. Obamacare is not the, the end. 
That's not the end game. That's just a step in the, in, in the process of complete socialization of medicine, which is where they're heading. When Obamacare fails, and I will guarantee that it fails, I will guarantee that both Republicans and Democrats will blame insurance companies for its failure. The, those insurance markets, the free market solution within Obamacare didn't work. So markets don't work, so we need to have everything controlled by the government. It's all a, a long-term plan. My name is David Azulay. Um, you started your talk about saying why we always lose the argument. Um, and I've been listening to all this and I've been following Ayn Rand for at least 20 years. And uh, I think that one thing that government or government does right now, the left or the socialist view of government, is that they sold the socialist view as a religion and, and all the all the economic system of socialism as religion. And therefore, they ask people who follow it to put reason aside. And we always try to win the argument by being rational. And this is why we lose it. I think we need to talk more about the, the morality of capitalism, which we don't talk enough. I think a lot of the time that I see people try to convince, they talk about how good it is to have a good business and to take care of yourself and everything. But he doesn't talk about the morality of capitalism and how it's much superior to the morality of socialism. And I don't know if you have ideas about how to improve it better and give talking points to people who go and try to debate other people and give them that. Well, let me recommend, uh, in terms of showing how the morality of capitalism works and what it means in a day-to-day -day life, I think... First of all, I think Rand's books all illustrate that in the characters, but I think that a great talk that it's, it's available online is John Allison's talk about how the virtues and values, Rand's virtues and values that he implemented at BB&T, and, and he concretizes it in how they work out, and I think that's an incredibly powerful and valuable talk in illustrating exactly that point. The, the, the efficacy of the right morality and why that morality is right, because it's pro-individual human life. We also wrote a book on the subject. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything we talk about is about the morality of capitalism. You're absolutely right. That is the key. But uh, our book, that's the theme that goes through the entire book. Hi, my name is Beth Lawton. I'm a fourth year OAC student and I'm a patent attorney. Um, I have a question. You talked about you know, people who are rational and you say that they'll have good outcomes and people who you know, decide, who choose not to be rational, you know, to allow them to suffer the consequences of their irrationality. But I think that, I mean, I think we can all agree that someone could be entirely rational all the time and may not have good outcomes just based off of you know, forces outside of their control. And so I often get into arguments with people and they say, well, fine, well, even if everybody is rational all the time, there are going to be a lot of good people who haven't done anything wrong that are good people, and there is bad stuff that's going to happen to them, and we have to help them. We're, uh, what is your response to that kind of argument? So it's definitely true that morality or rationality, they're not guarantees. It's about maximization. How do you maximize your opportunity to have a great life? And in a free country, certainly some people will hit really bad luck. 
And the whole issue under capitalism is you're free to help them. But, and what has happened historically is that they've been on the receiving end of a vast amount of support. And this does not just mean private charity, although it certainly means that. It means helping friends. I mean, for a person really to hit rock bottom and not get any aid, you have to have no family, no friends, no company, no neighbor. Everybody has to basically hate you. And even then, then you can go to a private charity that doesn't, you know, that doesn't know your name. It's, it, it's a complete farce to say some people hit bad times. Shouldn't we take from everybody else and chain us all together in some big collective net? And uh, we talk about this in our chapter on the entitlement state. We can actually, this experiment has been done. This was, America didn't have an entitlement state in any significant way until 1930. And even at a time when we were vastly poor because capitalism had only been able to start to make us wealthy, nobody starved in the streets. Yes. My name is Jeff Neal, and I'm here representing my happy, self-interested self. Uh, you've made a couple of points about uh, the left's the left and progressives not understanding or not caring about economic power or economic theory. And my point will come in the form of a question. Don't you think it's the case that they do? It's not that they don't care or don't understand those. It's that they have an overwhelming desire for power that makes their understanding or differential, uh, uh, differentiating between economic and political power moot. Yeah, so as I said about Kugman, there's certainly, certainly the intellectuals among them absolutely know deep down that they're wrong in terms of when they argue the, the, the nonsensical economics that they argue. And you're right, they don't care. And whether it's driven by sheer power lust, which would be the case of Kugman, you know, think about a, a Bill Clinton. I don't think he believes in anything but Bill Clinton and uh, Bill Clinton qua power. Not Bill Clinton quite living a, a fulfilled life, because I don't know if you, you wouldn't know what that looked like if, if um, you know, flourishing life. But so, yes, many of them are motivated by power. Not all of them. I don't think, for example, Obama is motivated by power. And I don't think, uh, I don't think a lot of the people surrounding Obama are necessarily motivated by power. I think they're motivated by ideology. I, I mean, I, I know it's hard to conceive. We're motivated by ideology, and they're motivated by ideology. They have a strong belief in the virtue of a particular outcome. In their case, let's say it's egalitarianism, equality of outcome. They don't care if, you know, and this is why I say egalitarians are worse than socialists, much worse than socialists. Because socialists believed in equality for the sake of something else. That is, equality was a means to human flourishing. They actually believed in human flourishing. If you read the socialists, they said, in that utopia that comes one day, we'll all be happy and successful. Now we know that's BS, but, but they believed in that. Egalitarians don't take it that next step. They say, we just want to be equal. And if everybody's worse off, and if everybody's miserable, and if everybody's dying in the streets, that's OK as long as we're equal. It's, it, it is, what's that? No, I don't, think it's, I don't think that's the only thing that motivates them. I don't think it's only power. I think it's they want to see their ideas manifest in reality. And their ideas are horrible, and they, they are, they're willing to distort reality in, in order to get those ideas in play. I don't, I don't think everything for these guys is about power. I mean, think about Noam Chomsky. Right? He's never going to have power. 
but his ideas are evil. And he spends a lot of time promoting these evil ideas, and he believes them. And he, he evades, and, he, and, he, and he's, he's a, I think he's an evil human being. He, he, he evades, and he distorts, and he lies, and he does all this stuff, not for the sake of power, but for the sake of his emotions, his belief system. Some are motivated by power, some are motivated by pure ideology. And don't put me in this position, but there's some good leftists out there <laughs> Good in this sense. I think a lot. Uh, there's a number of people, particularly among younger people. I don't believe at the upper echelons of political power and in, in, uh, top intellectuals, but who simply look and they look at the right and they say, "Well, that can't be right because these guys are garbage." Which, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of really bad ideas, a lot of pathetic arguments, and so. And I've met people like this, and uh, oftentimes they end up becoming uh, objectivists. They they look at the right and they say that has got to be wrong. And I think a lot of them are attracted to the left because of the left's better part, which is the rejection of the, the conventional right. And, and the old left used to, it doesn't anymore, used to represent reason and science. It doesn't, of course, anymore. The new left doesn't at all. But in, but in those days, you could find better leftists, I think. Um, but, but it's two of the right. I mean, think of people who've done horrific things in the name of religion, not because of power, but because, <laughs> because that's what they thought was right to do. Well, you could argue about whether communism or fascism are secular, but that's maybe for a different day. <laughs> All right. I think we're going to stop here and invite each of you to make any concluding comment about the book or the ideas in it that you want, and then we'll go sell you books. <laughs> we'll sign them. So the, a core of what we're looking at, if you look at how the left took over, how did the left, in really the space of a few generations, transform America? from a basically free capitalist society into an ever-growing regulatory entitlement state. It was, they had passionate crusaders who had moral idealism on that side. They were fighting for an ideal. And that, I mean, if, if you read them, if you look at what they did, that was the core of motivating them, and that's the core of why they were so effective at persuading people, at changing field after field, whether it was education, whether it was law. Ayn Rand is the first person to say that idealism doesn't belong on the side of those who want to expand the power of state over the individual. It belongs on the side of those who want to protect the individual's freedom so that he can make the most of his own life. And that's what we refer to as Ayn Rand's free market revolution. It's a complete revolution in where idealism belongs. And that is the core of why we think if you add that to the case that's been made by free market economists and free market historians, if you add that context, if you add that, that philosophic firepower, we really do have a shot in the next 10 to 15 years starting to see the needle move a little bit in the other direction, and then long range, I think, fully in the direction of freedom. Yeah, I mean, I would just add that if we don't, we don't move the needle at all. It, it is not a optional, it's not a nice plus, if we're going to move the needle towards freedom, we need to capture them all high ground. If we're going to move the needle, we need to be idealistic, not just in terms of philosophy, but even in terms of just capitalism. We need to clearly define what we mean by capitalism. We mean separation of state from economics, the whole caboodle, right? The principled stand, and we need to go for it. And we need to clearly articulate why that is right why it is moral, 
why it's consistent with human nature, and it, you know why it is practical, why it works. Uh, and if we can make that argument, I think Don's right. I think we can make a difference. I think we can win this. Uh, it's still going to be a fight, but I think uh, I think it's doable. Thank you. All right, please join us in the Winter Garden.